This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Today we are in James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Thanks for your patience uh, as far back as Christmas, we were saying, hey, we may be in the building in two weeks, and it, there's just things outside of our control. Uh, well, all, um, yeah, like everything. Um, so because of that, we've just needed to. And you know what? I, I really don't think it's going to happen. I agree with Pete uh, totally, but who knows? It might end up here next week. So I'm going to go ahead and ask for your patience now. But uh, thank you for your flexibility and patience in that. that after meeting there two weeks or you know, we'll forget that uh, we had this January delay pretty, pretty small in the course of eternity, I suppose. But, uh, but thank you for your patience on that. Um, and thanks for finding us. If you're new here um, this week, please look at the website. If you desire to come back, we hope you would. But if you do, please uh, look at the website before you show up. Okay, James 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the subject of wisdom, for we need it. And so we approach you this morning, and we pray the prayer you call us to pray in James 1.5, that if any lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And so we're asking, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we discuss the topic of wisdom. So speak, Lord, open our eyes. We are dependent upon you for the wisdom that comes down from above. And I I pray most of all that you'd show us the one who has become for us wisdom, the Lord Jesus Christ this morning in all of his glory. Lord, so show us the Savior afresh this morning. Help me to be clear thinking and succinct and uh, true to the text as I open your word, Lord. I ask your filling of the Spirit that I might proclaim your word in truth. And I pray that you would fill us all with the Spirit, that we might be hearers of your word, that we might hear what the Spirit is saying through the Scripture, and that we might be doers of your word as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago when uh, we moved here to the Dallas area to plant this church, I was uh, moving after living most of my adult life. My growing-up life was in Texas. Most of my adult life was in California, Southern California. And so when we moved here, I I noticed that I picked up a new habit, and uh, that was listening to sports radio, sports talk radio. I used to listen to uh, uh, politically oriented radio, and 
uh, gave that up when we moved here. It's the best thing I've ever done. Uh, just tremendous. I would so recommend that. that. That is not from the scripture. That is my personal preference and opinion. But life is great. God is a whole lot bigger. The world's not over. And everyone's not just a white hat or a black hat like they'd like you to believe. So uh, there is nuance on the planet. So nonetheless, um, moved here and I took up uh, sports radio because living most of my adult life in Southern California, I didn't live in vibrant sports towns. I was in LA, I was in San Diego. They've got their teams, but nobody's irrationally passionate about their teams like the Cowboys fans are. So coming here, I found that very interesting. Good sports organizations in Southern California, um, but there's just a lack of vibrant passion. And so that bleeds over into sports radio. And so coming here and first hearing what would happen like in the fall on a Monday following a Cowboys game on an overreaction Monday, what would happen is just, I just had no category. I've never lived anywhere where that would go on. So if the Cowboys win, every caller and every commentator is like a junior high girl at a Jonas Brothers concert. They are screaming. (laughs) They are irrational. They are crazy. They are crying. It is it is insane. And then if the Cowboys lose on Sunday, then, like last Sunday, then, then Monday is national morning. Flags are being hung at, you know, waved at half-mast. It is like national disaster if they lose. And so I just find that very, I like the Cowboys, but even if I didn't, I would just find that very, very entertaining because it's just up and down. And what I really appreciate is, is listening to various commentators and the, um, the, the genuine insight that they bring to bear about the game because they rehash and overhash and prepare and just beat a dead horse and go into great detail exegeting every play that happened in the previous game. And for the casual observer, I just find that interesting. The expertise, there's genuine expertise, there's personality, it's, they're selling commercials, uh, I understand that. But there's genuine insight that I don't have about football, and there's genuine observation, and there's uh, genuine wisdom about the game, something not very important, but about the game nonetheless. But the one thing I find very interesting is that no one questions the wisdom of a sports commentator based on his ability to perform on the football field. So while this guy is giving tremendous insight in the game, no one even raises a question that this guy gets winded walking to the bathroom at the commercial break. This guy, I mean, he is criticizing many of the guys. Some of them are former pro athletes, but many of them are criticizing wide receivers who are slow. These individuals are in the top 1% of human speed on the planet, and yet they are slow to a guy who never gets up out of his seat and spends his whole weekend for his job in front of a television watching games. So a guy who cannot catch a ball, cannot pass a ball, cannot run, could not take anyone on the team at any athletic competition whatsoever, yet he's an expert. And so in our culture, this is true of political talk radio as well, in in our culture, we have expertise detached from practice, and we're very comfortable with that. We're very comfortable with someone who knows a lot but can't do anything regarding, to his, er, regarding his area of knowledge. We, we live in a world where you can break down a play and analyze and direct, yet never coach a game, never play in a game. And the Scripture knows nothing of theoretical wisdom apart from lived wisdom. The Scripture knows nothing 
of wise commentary on life detached from wise living of life. See, Christianity is applied wisdom. Knowing and following God is taking true wisdom, discernment, understanding of God, understanding of His ways, understanding of our nature, understanding primarily of the gospel, and applying it to life. And that is the theme that has emerged in the book of James. James is a book about applied theology, not confessional theology. Applied Christianity, not merely intellectual Christianity. Being a hearer and a doer of the word. Having faith that leads to works, not faith which at, without works, which is dead. Real faith will lead to real life change, according to God, in this letter, the book of James. And the same is true with wisdom. See, this passage we just read makes the point that godly wisdom will be seen in godly living. Not in armchair commentary on life. Not in discerning observation about, not a game, but about life. There will be a tie between godly wisdom and godly living. Because that's the only kind of wisdom the Bible endorses. In this passage, James is going to contrast two kinds of wisdom. And he's going to show the nature of two different kinds of wisdom. And he's also going to show the results of of two different kinds of wisdom. But before he does that, he begins with this question, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? So James is writing to uh, dispersed Christians in various churches from Jewish backgrounds, and, and he is sort of calling out the church. There's issues in the church. We'll comment on this in a minute. But He's kind of calling out the church and saying, okay, who is wise and understanding? That, that's got to be a trick question. I don't know who's raising their hand. You know, who's humble? Me. You know, I don't really think that's going to work. You just, disqual- hands down, you just disqualified yourself. But who is wise and understanding among you? And his answer is so interesting. When he calls people to, who is wise? Who is the person who has wisdom? Who is the person who knows? He doesn't begin with a quiz of anyone's theological knowledge. We should pursue theological knowledge, by the way, not for the sake of theological knowledge, but for the sake of application. But that's not where he starts. He doesn't ask, who who understands Greek grammar? Who can parse Greek verbs? That's not where he starts when he asks about wisdom. Who's wise among you? He doesn't say, who has the most earned degrees from the most prestigious universities in the room? That's not where he starts. He didn't go there at all when he talks about wisdom. He doesn't say, how many books have you read? Who has the most earned degrees? He doesn't ask that. He doesn't say, who is publishing books in your midst? He doesn't say, who is the most articulate debater in your midst? That wise person, identify yourself. He doesn't say, who is the best problem solver? He doesn't say who is the best counselor. He doesn't even say who's the best biblical counselor in your midst. He doesn't say who has the most experienced resume of wisdom. He doesn't cover any of that. He says who is wise among you? Here's the answer. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness 
of wisdom. Let him show it by his life. Chapter 2, faith is demonstrated by works. Chapter 3, in this section, godly wisdom will be seen in godly living, godly conduct, applied truth. It's the theme that we look at every week because James never strays very many verses at all from the burden of applied Christianity. Wisdom is not knowledge detached from life. See, biblical wisdom is where theory and practice intersect. Where theory and practice intersect. It's an applied wisdom. It is knowledge of God, of the nature of God. Knowledge of ourselves. Knowledge of the gospel. And that knowledge of the gospel is to be a living, breathing knowledge that transforms our heart and then transforms our life. A transformed heart leads to transformed speech. We looked at that last week. So our words, our thoughts, our actions are to be different if we're living according to biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom does not lead merely to an to a different intellectual worldview. It leads to a different lifestyle. Now, how we think informs how we act, but we must not stop at how we think. It is how we act as well. So let him show it by his good conduct. This word good has the idea of lovely behind it or attached to it, something that is good, something that is lovely, something that is appealing. He's saying, let the wise and understanding person demonstrate through the attractiveness of wisdom in their life. There's a beauty, there's an attractiveness, there's something compelling, there's something that draws us in about a life lived wisely. So let that person through the wisdom, the good wisdom of their life, show their wisdom in the meekness of wisdom. So there is a meekness that is to characterize the wise person. If that's true, there might not be very many wise people in any form of talk radio whatsoever. I haven't encountered very humble, very much humility when the radio is on. Humility. Now, the, the word is translated humility some places. The NIV translates it humility, for instance. The ESV has gone with meekness of wisdom. The NIV says humility that comes by or comes from wisdom or the humility of wisdom. Genuine wisdom reflects humility. When you are, when you are near humility, you will likely be touching wisdom. When you're near godly humility, humility in response to God, you will be touching godly wisdom in a person's life. The Bible says that. Proverbs 11 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. See, the reason that humility and wisdom are tied together, because wisdom, uh, well, let me back up. Humility recognizes who God is and who I am and recognizes the great difference between us. Humility right-sizes us. Humility causes us to see reality, to see God in all his grandeur, and to see me in all my weakness, all my limitations, all my need. So the humble person is not impressed with themselves. The humble person is impressed with God. The humble person is not awed by himself or herself. The humble person is awed by God and what he has done for us. 
Not only is that the case, but wisdom, and this passage says this, wisdom is a gift. You know, verse 16, uh, no, no, verse 17, the wisdom from above. See, real wisdom doesn't originate with us. Now, by common grace, people can have wise observations. Non-believers can have wise observations about life. Uh, They can have street smarts. They can have insight. They can have discernment about life by God's common grace. But genuine wisdom that is implemented to glorify God and to celebrate Christ and who he is, that type of wisdom, redemptive wisdom, we might say, is only a gift. It only comes from from God. So the reason humility is appropriate for, and is tied to wisdom is because the wise person recognizes the source of their wisdom. The wise person lives in the good of 1 Corinthians 4 where Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received? I, I don't think it would be uh, a stretch or a, a misapplication of that text to say, what do you know about God that you've not received? What do you know about God that he hasn't shown you? What truth have you grasped that his light didn't enable you to comprehend? What have you figured out on your own? What do you know about the universe that you came up with on your own? What original thoughts do you have about God that are true that you didn't receive from here? See, wisdom is a gift. So the person who is appropriately wise is the person who recognizes the, 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 the origin of any wisdom that they have. The wisdom that comes down from above births humility in our life. It's found in the life of the person who rightly assesses himself and rightly assesses God and responds with meekness. Now, that doesn't mean spinelessness. You know, meekness doesn't mean wimpiness or just soft in in areas where we shouldn't be soft. It doesn't mean a compromise or not taking a stand on biblical truth or just sort of being uh, tolerant to an extreme where everybody kind of has their own way and that's okay and everybody has their own truth and can't we all just get along and love one another and hold hands in a circle. That, it's, that's not meekness. I mean, Jesus said, I am meek and lowly of heart. So Jesus is meek. He's, he's ultimately meek. It, it doesn't mean that we don't stand for biblical truth. But it means a humility that recognizes the grace of God and places us, right-sizes us as we, shouldn't, as we should be. See, the opposite of that sort of meekness is a selfish striving. The person who manipulates, the person who uh, you know, sort of raises his voice as if it all depends on him, the person who has to make it happen, the person who forces his way in rather than the person that depends on God and speaks and acts in a humble way in confidence that God is in control. Humility comes from an understanding that God is in control, that God will defend his people, that God will take care of my life, that God is at work, that God orchestrates things for his glory. And so I don't have to run the universe. I can walk in meekness and in humility. And I can proclaim the truth, I can believe the truth, I can practice the truth, I can communicate and share the truth, and I can totally leave the results to God. That's the meekness of humility, the meekness of wisdom, trusting in God. See, where there is wisdom, there will be humility, and where there is humility, there will just be rest. And where there is pride and where there is arrogance, there will be restlessness. Restlessness. 
And we're going to look at a number of tests of wisdom, but that's one. If you've ever encountered a meek person, someone who just has a sort of, sort of has, their, has themselves under control by the Spirit of God, someone who can just subdue. I'm not talking about being stoic here. But I'm talking about someone who can subdue, who has a control over their speech. We saw last week, you control your speech, you control your whole body. Nobody can control their speech. But Christ can tame our tongues and does so over time. So if, you, if, the, if the spirit of self-control guards your mouth, guards your actions, that, that is a person who has, a, there, there's something about, you've encountered that person. And there's a subdued nature about their heart. They're not in a fit and a panic and a got to make it happen and are going to force their point. There is a meekness about them. They may have a strong personality. You can have a strong personality, quote, unquote, and, and be meek by being confident in God and resting in God and trusting God. That's what's in view here. Okay, what he does now is he, he contrasts these two kinds of wisdom. Godly, living is, godly wisdom is seen in godly living, and we're going to see ungodly wisdom is seen in godless living or ungodly living, we might say. Wisdom from, a below, from below is the first thing he talks about. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, why in a passage about wisdom is he starting to talk about bitter jealousy? What does jealousy have to do with wisdom? Or why is he talking about selfish ambition? Well, probably he's addressing live situations in the churches. Look at chapter 4. This is the next section we'll be in. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So, He's addressing, this is kind of in a context where he's addressing there must be issues of conflict going on. And so he is going to begin to identify godly wisdom in a corporate environment, in, a, in the life of a church. Godly wisdom versus ungodly wisdom. Wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. And this topic of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is being raised at the floor, likely because of conflicts in the, in the midst of the churches. And so he's wanting to say, look, you need to respond wisely. You need to live wisely and humility and meekness and a life lived out. It's not what you know. What, not, it's not merely what you can say or what can, you can articulate that is wisdom because someone may be advertising great wisdom. But if that is motivated by selfish ambition and jealousy, it won't be of God. And so he's wanting to help us to discern that. Maybe there's some claiming to be wise and they're bringing criticisms and arguments and that sort of thing. God's wisdom isn't found in the mouths and lives of jealous and selfishly ambitious people. That's not where you'll find wisdom. Okay, so first of all, he says bitter jealousy. That's a selfish desire. Bitter jealousy is a selfish desire that I want what someone else has. I want to be what someone else is. I want to be thought of as someone else is thought of. I want to be recognized as someone else is recognized. See, jealousy places, this is the key, wisdom from above, wisdom from below. Uh, wisdom from below should probably be wisdom in quotation marks, but wisdom from above, wisdom from below. Wisdom from below has me at the center. Jealousy is all about me. Jealousy is about my rights. Jealousy is about my position. Jealousy is about my reputation. Jealousy is about my preferences. Jealousy is about my desires. Jealousy is about my abilities. 
Jealousy is about what I want and what I crave and what I desire that I don't have. And jealousy can also be about what you have that I wish you didn't have or what you are that I wish you weren't. Jealousy. Selfish ambition is related. Selfish ambition is an ambition for me. Ambition is not wrong. Ambition for God and ambition for the good of others. I'd say Paul's a pretty ambitious individual for the glory of God. He's so ambitious, he'll, he puts his entire life at risk for the gospel to go forth. He's very ambitious, but he's ambitious for the glory of God. He's ambitious for the gospel to reach people, for lives to be turned around, for souls to be saved, for the gospel to go forth. He's very ambitious, but selfish ambition puts me at the center. Selfish ambition is about me promoting myself, my name, my opportunities, my position. Selfish ambition is just simply ambitious for me and ultimately desiring that others share in ambition for me and then having an attitude when they don't have the same ambition for me that I have for me. Godly wisdom has a very different motivation. Godly wisdom, humility, meekness, conduct that reflects the gospel on display, conduct that points to the Savior, discernment and awareness that He is everything, that I am a sinner saved by grace, that Christ gave His life for me, that my need is so great that God Himself had to become man and die to forgive my sins. That's that's what I have to offer is a sinner who has been saved by grace. Humility makes much of God. Bitterness and selfish ambition, that wisdom makes much of me, my plan, my ways. Me and my mine are all over the place in the thinking of the wisdom that is from below. It's, it's earthly, verse 15 says. Earthly. It's unspiritual. That means it's, it's without the Spirit. It's not from the Spirit. It's a kind of wisdom that is not revealed by the Spirit in the Scriptures. It's unspiritual. It's natural. It's earthly. It's me. And he goes on even further. He says it's demonic. See, there's a kind of wisdom that is earthly, natural, me, it's oftentimes self-help oriented. It's oftentimes get-ahead oriented. You be a success. And again, the Bible is all for aspirations for one's life. It's just what's the motive of those aspirations for one's life? The, the, the Bible is all about making a difference in life. The Bible, of course. But what's the motive? Who's at the center? What's the goal? Who should be proclaimed and announced where should the spotlight shine that's the difference that's the difference and so there is a kind of world mentality and a worldliness that comes into the church where we put ourselves first when we assert our ambitions our recognition our preferences that's the center of our thinking and then what seems very wise to us is i deserve this I deserve better. See, humility says, I'm really thankful I'm not getting what I deserve before God. He's not treated us as our sins deserve, the psalm says. And why is that? Well, it's because he treated Christ as our sins deserve. So humility 
is, it, it, it has gratitude, appreciation, gratefulness to God, lives with a, an awareness of the privilege that it is to know God. This other wisdom is I demand, I deserve, I should have. Others receive better treatment, and they shouldn't. That's bitter jealousy. They shouldn't. And so I'm going to act. Here's my plan. Here's my reaction. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's how I'm going to manipulate to get my way. You know, it's, it's my problem. It, you know, my situation is someone else's fault. It's their fault. If they didn't do this, I wouldn't be like this or whatever it is. It's blame shifting. That's the wisdom of the world. Finds the problems out there. Finds the problems out there. I won't forget what you did. That's a way of thinking, a type of wisdom. It seems logical. It seems reasonable. It seems true. But at the center, if God is not the center and the purposes of God and the glory of God are not the center, then James doesn't shy away from saying that line of thinking is from hell. That's demonic. It's unspiritual. And it's earthly. And so it's a strong warning. It's a strong warning to a place where individuals were willing to fight, verse 1 of chapter 4, were willing to quarrel because of the passions, the desires, the cravings at war within them. Because they wanted, and they were willing to fight for it. Craig Blomberg in his commentary on James says, when we fight for power in Christian circles, evil establishes a foothold. When we operate, listen to this, when we operate with worldly values, seeking our own honor and status, we even offer Satan an entrance into the house of God. It's a strong statement. I think I'm promoting me. I think I'm opening the door for me when I act in a way that puts me at the center. I'm not opening a door for me. I'm I'm opening a door for the devil is what he says. I think it's true. It's unspiritual. It's earthly. And consider the results of that kind of wisdom that puts me at the center, that's inspired by my selfish ambition, that's inspired by my jealousy. Look at the results. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When individuals pursue themselves. This can be in a marriage when the pursuit of self is primary. This can be in a family. This can be in a small group. This can be in a church. When it is, when we are pursuing ourselves, disorder breaks out. Not order, but disorder breaks out. Think of the results just of selfish ambition. What happens when I'm motivated when my compelling desire is my honor? my comfort, my preference, my way, me. And I begin to relate to you based on me and what you can do for me. And let's all think about me. When it's all about me, my way, my pride, think about all of the kind of vile practices that break out around that. Boasting. Do I boast in Christ? Is my passion Jesus? Is my excitement or is it me and my accomplishments and how I'm doing and what people think of me? arguing, he says that in verse 1, we've just read that, arguing, arguing, rarely, there's not going to be disorderly outbreaks of arguing when the subject's the glory of God. I mean, 
It's just not going to be what's happening when the subject is humility and servanthood and loving others and preferring others and living in the good of the gospel. You're just not going to have disorder in every evil thing. It's when there's arguing for my way or in a marriage as well. That is true. Gossip, slander, manipulating, politicking to get ahead. This happens when there's selfish ambition. It's who do you connect it to and who should you talk to and how can you maneuver what would be the key network that you need to get into to foster your way? Not to serve, not to be a blessing, to pr- promote yourself, myself. Ungratefulness. Where there's humility, there will always be gratefulness. Where there's Christian humility, a, a perception and an apprehension of who Christ is and what he's done. There will always be the aroma of gratefulness. Where there is selfish ambition, there will always be the aroma of, of ungratefulness. Complaining. Grumbling, celebrating, usually this is private, but celebrating the failures and difficulties of others rather than grieving with them. See, in a, in a, in a group where the glory of God is central and the humility of wisdom is on display and the lovely character of a gospel-formed life is characteristic, then we will weep with those who weep and we will mourn with those who mourn. And our hearts will be heavy with those who suffer. But when selfish ambition is in play, I may secretly rejoice when something bad happens to someone else if it will foster me in some way. Complaining that things aren't going my way. Self-pity. Where there is selfish ambition, nobody reaches all that they want. You cannot satisfy selfish ambition because there's always more. Because everybody on the planet's not worshiping me, so there's more, right? Everybody's not bowing down to my desires, so there's more that I need. There's more that I want. It's a, it's a ceaseless, uh, the appetite of selfish ambition is endless. It is ceaseless. You will never be fully, sat- real satisfaction only comes in the glory of God and ambition for him. And trust in Him. And rest in Him. There's rest in Christ. There's restlessness in self. And so what can happen with selfish ambition is there's self-pity. Because I'm not getting what I want. My God is not receiving all that it craves. A lack of love. I mean, the ultimate, well, maybe not the ultimate, but the first one that came to mind. I'll say it that way. The first, the, the, the first case study that came to mind to me is the book of uh, Corinthians, the church at Corinth. This is, these verses of the church at Corinth. I'm going through a study with a few guys right now on um, the church at Corinth and how the main problem going on in Corinth was the lack of appreciation and centrality of the gospel. And in its place, in that vacuum, when you remove Christ and Him crucified is what we're all about and what we're gathering for, when you put that off, then there's a thousand other things that will jump in there and will vie for centrality in the church. And that's what you see in Corinth. There is every kind of disorder because they're no f- longer focused on Christ. There's, they're no longer a spirit of humility in that church. Paul says, you think you guys are kings. You think you reign. Humility is a distant memory in the church in Corinth. Uh, they are divided. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Everybody's got their own agenda. I'm right. I'm attaching with this leader. I'm right. I'm attaching with this leader. 
There is selfishness galore. People are excluding folks from the Lord's Supper. Others are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Paul says, your meetings do more harm than they do good. Why? Because everybody's vying for self. Everyone's personal spiritual experience is the top goal. It's not let's love one another, let's build up the body of Christ more concerned about how others are doing than ourselves, more concerned about the glory of God than our own glory. That is not the issue. It is my spiritual experience, and not only my spiritual experience, but my spiritual experience on display. And so I'm going to stand up and yell in tongues, and someone else is going to stand up and yell, and there'll be no interpretation. No one will know what's going on. It'll be confusing. But everybody's having an experience, and everybody's about themselves, and that's sacred to the Corinthians, and it is an absolute mess. There are individuals suing one another in the church, not even seeking to get help, not even walking through a biblical process um, of, uh, of reconciliation and peacemaking, just saying, hey, I'll see you in court, just running with lawsuits in the midst of the church. And Paul says, this is not wisdom in chapter 2. This is not the kind of wisdom Why? Because wisdom is not what you know. The Corinthians knew plenty. Wisdom is how you apply and live out the truth of the gospel because godly wisdom leads to godly living. So what James is talking about here, this selfish ambition, this jealousy, this earthly wisdom, this ideology of the culture for me to promote myself, it breeds destruction in a church. And the Corinthians are an example of that in the first letter to them. But he also talks about wisdom of above, from above, and that is good news. That's different. Wisdom from above. Look at verse 17. The wisdom from above that is given by God is first pure. Pure. It's clean from the muck of selfishness. This other stuff is all about self, and there's just a dirty, filthy stench in a church where everyone is pursuing themselves with a passion. And so he's saying, hey, guys, look, if there's really godly wisdom, you'll you'll not only be able to whiff godly wisdom by humility and meekness, there's a purity to it. There's a purity to it. You've encountered individuals like that where they know God and they walk with God and they're self-subduing and the Spirit of Christ directs them. There's an aroma about their life that is not only humble, but there's a purity. Not in some kind of legalistic, they don't do what everybody else does sort of a way where we can just list all the things they abstain from, therefore they're pure. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a purity of heart that just comes through in their life. There's something attractive about their life There's something attractive about their speech. There's something attractive about their relationships. Not flawless, not perfect, but you would say there is a purity there. Paul talks about this. I'm sorry, James talks about this. In the next chapter, look at chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This idea of purity is about not being double-minded. It's about being... a singleness of devotion to Christ, a unity in devotion. I mean, in the previous chapter, he says you don't get salt water from a fresh pond or vice versa. You don't get fresh water from a salt pond. And so he's saying if you've met Christ, it will show up in your life. And in an ever-increasing way, 
there will be a purity of the water that flows from your life. There will always be gunk in it until Christ returns. There will always battle sin. We'll always battle the flesh until we die or until he returns for us. But there's an increasingly pure stream that is to flow from our lives. And that's seen in a lifestyle of godly wisdom characterized by humility. See, wisdom's not merely having the right answer, though we're not down on right answers. I mean, knowing the Bible's a good thing, but it's applying the Bible, knowing and applying so that we don't deceive ourselves. Wisdom is not merely the right answer, but it's thinking and practiced, motivated by a pure heart. Not double-minded, but a motive that is single, singular. I want to please the Lord in this. That's a purity of wisdom. What's the motive? Pure wisdom is, I want to please the Lord. That's a good question to ask. Some of us are, let, let's be practical. Some of this has not been overly practical, I realize. I haven't given a lot of examples. I've given some, but not a ton. S- many of us are facing stuff in the room right now where we need wisdom. We've got a scenario. We've got a situation. We've got a relationship. We've got a checkbook. We've got a job. We've got a marriage. We've got, so we've got a health report or a diagnosis is what I meant to say. And so we need wisdom. Well, here's, here's the first thing I, I would say as we're thinking about a plan, plotting a direction, is, is, is the desire I have in this direction, you know, maybe you've come to a decision in something, is it, does it reflect purity in the sense of is the motive to please God? I mean, is my motive here to honor the Lord? Is my motive here to draw attention to him is my motive here the glory of God is my motive here the good of others facing a decision do I want others to benefit or do I want my actions to love others to serve others or am I about my own best interests to the exception of the good of others am I striving is this decision or this potential course of action is it self-promoting is it self-preserving is it restless or is there a peace attached to it? And I know that's subjective. Obviously, it needs to objectively. You can say, hey, I have a real peace about robbing a bank. I mean, I've talked to people who say, well, I know it's wise because I just feel peaceable or it just feels right. I'm not advocating that. Yeah, a lot of things feel peaceable at the time, and it's the deception of the flesh that's leading us to feel peaceable. So is, is the strategy, is the idea, is the plan, is the course of action, is the decision reflective of truth in Scripture, and is the motive behind it one that would be honoring to the Lord? Here's another one. Will this decision, this course of action, could I see this leading to peace or disorder? Peace or disorder. Rest or disorder in a godly, godly sense. God's wisdom is not only pure, but what does he say next? The wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable. Will this plan of action, will this conversation, will this meeting, will this letter, will this post on the internet, will this um, adjustment in my life, whatever it is, will it make for peace that honors God, peace that glorifies him. Romans 12.8 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That to live peaceably, not to deny truth, not, not peace at all costs, I'm not talking about that, but will it, for the sake of the Lord, bring about a peaceable resolution? God's wisdom is not only peaceable, but it's gentle. It's gentle. 
It's not harsh. It's not demanding. There's a gentleness. You can be gentle and at the same time clear and firm. You can require some, something of someone. If you're an authority, you can require something of someone under your authority, a parent, an employer, whatever it is, a- and you can do so gently. You can do so gently. Gentleness relates to humility. He not only goes on to that, but he says it's open to reason. That is, the wise person is persuadable, reasonable. The wise person is a listener. Open to reason means I'm listening. Chapter 1, he talks about being a hearer and a doer, that we're to be slow to speak and we're to be quick to hear. The wise person is slow to speak and quick to hear. And in the hearing, it's not just a fake kind of nod, and okay, go ahead so I can get in and make my point and demand my way and pursue my purposes, but I really want to hear, really want to hear. That, that's probably one of the single greatest ways to affect change in marital conflict, for instance, or any conflict, is to be quick to hear, is to be open to reason, is to listen to the, the effects that I've had on someone else, is to listen to their perspective, is to hear them, genuinely hear them, open to reason, open to others, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I mean, statistically, in a conflict, I mean, at least 50% of the time I'm wrong, right? Because I don't think anybody's 100%. At least that. And usually when it gets to motive, if there's a conflict, usually I find 100% of the time my motive is a little funny and not pure at some level open to reason, full of mercy. What does that mean? It means Christ has treated me with mercy by dying for my sins, giving his life for me. And so I am to relate in mercy to others, one sinner to another. Selfish ambition doesn't relate one sinner to another. It relates I'm right, you're wrong. I'm holy, you're not. I'm wise, you're ignorant. That's selfish ambition. Humility, meekness, sees the holiness of God, sees my own sinfulness, sees the work of Christ, and relates in mercy, compassion towards others. God's wisdom is also impartial. Talked about that in chapter 2, this, the sin of impartiality, treating people different because of values that we place upon them rather than what God would place. So chapter 2 talks about a rich person. A poor person walks in the church. Don't give preference to a rich person and tell a poor person, we don't have a seat for you. That's a worldly standard, that those who have are valuable, those who have not lack value. That's, impar- that's being partial, and he's saying don't be impartial. I'm sorry, don't be partial, be impartial is what he's saying, getting confused here. Be impartial. Lastly, he says it's sincere. God's wisdom is sincere. There's a sincerity. There's an openness. There's, you get this whole picture. It's gentle. It's peaceable. It's humble, it's open, it's correctable, it's entreatable, it's teachable, it's meek. It plans a course of action that will promote peace rather than destruction. It has God in view and the good of others in view and not self-glorification in view. What happens when people do that? Well, he says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those who have this kind of wisdom 
And those who act this way, because that is real wisdom, it's the gospel transformed into life practice and not mere intellectual creedal understanding and belief, but it is practicing and applying the truth of the gospel in life. When that happens, well, there's a crop that comes up. When people sow that kind of seed, that kind of peace, that kind of wisdom, the crop that God brings up is a harvest of righteousness. What a beautiful thing, a harvest of God is righteous, a harvest that reflects the character of God. So so you see the comparison here. It relates to us in our individual lives. It relates if you're married, your marriage, if you're single and have a roommate or, or a friend or you live with a family or whatever. As a single, it relates to those you live with and work with. It relates in our care groups. This, this touches our whole church. You see the options. There's, there's two options really here, two wisdoms. One is earthly. It's unspiritual. It, it's even demonic. It's motivated by, self in, by envy, by selfish ambition. It's motivated by bitter jealousy. It's all about me. It's about striving. And what does it produce? It produces disorder and every vile practice. I don't know what that is, but that doesn't sound good. Every vile practice. That's the results. Every vile practice and disorder. Mayhem. Relational mayhem. On the other hand, there's this wisdom from above. It comes from God. It comes through a life of godliness motivated by humility. It's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. It's sincere. It's a course of action, it's a conversation, it's a decision, it's a plan, it's a comment, it's an action, it's a change of life or direction or plan that produces peace. And what's the results when people live this way? A harvest of righteousness. Wow. Harvest of righteousness, disorder in every evil practice. All based on how we view God how we view ourselves, what difference the gospel makes in our hearts and lives, how we listen before we act, how we process and how we decide. Such a difference. How how do we live in this kind of wisdom? I'm out of time, so this is going to be very, very, really very, very brief. I shouldn't have talked. It wasn't wise to talk about talk radio because now I'm rushed at the end, so that (laughs) that probably wasn't wise. We go to the one who is wisdom. That's how we practice this kind of wisdom. First Corinthians 1, it says that Jesus has become for us wisdom. God made him our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Jesus is our wisdom. He is the wisdom of God for us. He is all wise. He acted perfectly, always acted wisely, always fulfilled these characteristics of wisdom, always lived a lovely, good life, a beautiful life with conduct that was attractive in its love and godliness. And and so he is our wisdom. God looks at us and he says, basically, we're fools, but those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior, he's crediting the wisdom of Christ to us. Amazing. And now he's transforming us into the nature of Christ so that declared wisdom becomes the actual wisdom in our lives, little by little. Amazing truth. So we go to Christ, the one who is wisdom. We acknowledge that he is our wisdom. We worship the one who is wisdom. We worship the wisdom of God, which 
brought life to us through the death of Christ, which forgave our sins through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we do. Secondly, we ask for wisdom. I mean, that's what he says in 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask. So we ask. We ask again. We ask again. I was thinking, I'm not sure, but maybe the prayer for wisdom is the prayer I've prayed more than any my whole life. I pray it, I think, daily I ask for wisdom because I live my life feeling I'm in over my head. I just do. I, I, in my marriage, in my family, uh, this isn't some great act of holiness on my part. It's just, what do I do? As pastors, we feel that way. I mean, uh, we're in a meeting this week talking about something, and I think the conclusion was, well, we just don't know what to do. So we just pray. Pray, Lord, give us wisdom. I'm not sure what to do here. So that is a prayer. We should pray that really daily. Lord, lead me. Lord, help me. Lord, speak to me. God, grant me wisdom through your scripture. Grant me wisdom through others that I talk to. God, show me what to do. I don't know what to do here. We pray that all the time. That's, that's what we do. And then when appropriate, we draw in others. I mean, God, oftentimes God will bring wisdom as we humble ourselves and ask others and practice this listening thing. You know, plans fail for lack of counsel, the Proverbs say. So often when I have a plan, a decision, an idea, and I'm just not sure, we go to the Scripture, we go to prayer, and we go to a trusted, mature Christian friend who can say, give us wisdom. What do you think about this? What do you see? What do you hear in me as I'm processing this? I want to be open to reason. If I'm not open to reason, I'm not headed down the path of wisdom. I'm not saying acquiesce and have other people make decisions for you. That's not what I'm saying. You're responsible for your decisions. But in that responsibility, we want to be open to the wisdom of God and what he might have for us. If you're a young person here today, um, a teenager, God wants to bring that in a significant way through your parents. God wants to bring you wisdom. If you are open to reason and gentle and listening and humble, you will be wise. If you know best and they know little, and you have it together, and you don't need their help, and they don't need to be drawn in, you're a fool. And you will lead to a life of disorder and ever evil practice. That's true of all of us. If we are not humble and seeking the appropriate help where necessary, then we will lead down a pathway of disorder rather than a pathway of the harvest of righteousness. It's my prayer for us as a church. I mean, this is kind of a big season for us, right? I mean, next week, it's kind of a big deal. I, I think when you go in there and worship, I think you think, this is, this is a pretty, pretty big step for us as a church. It's a pretty big next step for us as a people. And it's my prayer as we take our next step as a, as a church, that, um, that we take our next step in the growth of humility and seeing our need. That we don't think, boy, now we have something. Now we, wow, we've accomplished something or we have something, that, that we be more aware of our need for God and wisdom, and that we guard ourselves with this warning in view, looking at the Savior who's become our wisdom. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are our wisdom, and I pray for folks in the room today who are facing situations where they are needing wisdom, and I just pray today that you would show them yourself, and you would show them your Savior, and that you would, the Savior, and that you would graciously help them to discern, Lord, their need, their motives. Lord, I pray that we would be a humble people and that as we are facing things in our lives, we would come to you, humbling ourselves, asking you for help, trusting you for wisdom, praying, listening to your scripture, uh, being open 
to the wisdom and the, and the reason, open to the reasonings of others. Lord, help us to walk lowly and, and help us to uh, guard us from decisions motivated by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, I pray, God. So we just ask you for that, and we're confident that you'll do that. And I just want to pray for us as a church, Lord, in what only you know, if this will be our last Sunday here. But I just want to pray as we move to the next chapter of our church life, God, I just want to pray that you would humble us and that you would enable us to continue to walk as those aware of our need and that you would guard us from the selfish ambition that rears its head in every one of our hearts and brings a pathway of destruction. Lord, you've guarded us to date, and we say thank you. And we invite you to continue to do so for your glory for your honor, your reputation, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.